looking for the king of podcasts, you're in the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want to host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up, Crazy Train Radio? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. Hey, I know we have a lot of horror fans that listen to our shows, and I know things have been tough for everybody across the board these past six or seven months with what's been going on in the real world, but I wanted to make a suggestion to you horror fans, because I know part of the normal routine year in and year out is to attend different conventions to meet some of your favorite horror stars. However, none of us have been able to do that because of obvious reasons. But I do have a little suggestion for you. SignatureHorror.com Now, some may ask, what is that? Well, they obtain autographs for the fans from some of their favorite stars, from some of their favorite franchises. Whether it be the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. They have different options such as, besides getting their autographs, you can do live Zoom calls with your favorite stars. You can do personalized videos for people, greetings of some sort. They just have many options. So if you're looking for to spend some money that you may have spent at conventions, check them out and see the options they have signaturedhorror.com that's right signaturehorror.com
This is Supermouth Dave Drayson. I'm listening to Crazy Train, the best in the world right now. Please. And if you're lucky, Supermouth will be back. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. And I'm Elena, your favorite host from the Emerald Isles. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Folks, if you were a part of our three-day food bank virtual, you will recognize the one voice who is joining us again. Dr. Mike, who has been a longtime writer and friend to the wrestling business, which is a great thing. Uh, he was introduced to us thanks to a Mr. Evan Ginsberg, who is known for producing things like 350 Days, The Wrestler, yada, yada, yada. We all know Evan's credentials there. So, hello, Evan. We know you'll hear this. But Dr. Mike Lano pleasure to see and talk to you again sir and dr mike here has uh we've been in contact since that virtual fundraiser and today he has brought one of his buddies from the industry and i'm gonna let dr mike do the introduction for this man who is we were talking hall of fames before we started folks but i know for a fact he's a member of the midwest championship hall of fame so Dr. Mike, would you like to do a full introduction for this guest? Oh, yeah. Uh, let me let you get, well, at least you know, like my guests I'm bringing aboard. And that's kind of what I like doing is whenever I'm on somebody's show, I like bringing my friends with me. I don't have anything to plug, but let me say I've written and shot just like Dave Brzezinski has for pretty much all the magazines. My specialty, like Dan Westbrook was working for Japan but I've been in wrestling radio since 73, a little after Bill Apter and Arnie Katz and uh, Potshot Bill Kunkel started wrestling radio really fully. And I've been pulling some overnights, no sleep. Dave might know this, getting photos to Vice Network for their uh, third season of Dark Side of the Ring. But anyway, Dave Brzezinski, Dave Drayson Brzezinski, he came into our territory. That was the first time I met him, 72, 73, in the Los Angeles Mike LaBelle territory. He was working in the front office, but he had previously done everything there is to do in wrestling before most anybody. Shot and wrote and edited the program for uh, the Sheik's Detroit famous, famous promotion uh, that we're going to be talking about today. Then he became a manager, one of the best talkers in the industry one of the total wrestling historians. He helped co-found the WFIA, I believe, in the 60s, along with Tom Burke and other greats, Jeff Walton, my boss in L.A. Uh, he has toured the world. He uh, did a 180 or a 360 and got even more famous in the, the wine and culinary business and uh, a world global traveler. He's done everything, but now he's always given back to the wrestling promotion. That's why I wanted to bring him on. He's put out fantastic books of his photos that are absolutely incredible, not just in Detroit, but all over the world. And uh, particular, you know, Sheik, Bruiser, all those greats, Luis Arriba Martinez, so many great names, Pampero Furpo, but um, he has a new weekly series that is the ultimate because he is the ultimate Det- Detroit historian, if not one of the greatest historians of wrestling overall. And uh, 
well, we'll be talking about that. Uh, big time wrestling was a favorite of everybody's. And uh, so without further ado, one of the great managers, he managed the Sheik and so many others, Dave Drayson Bersinski. Thanks for having me on, guys. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, nice introduction, Mike. Uh, I appreciate all the kind words, but uh, some people will disagree with you. But, you know, uh, I, you know, I've done a lot. You know, I've done, you know, the photography. I was the fan. Uh, I was a manager. I did the body press program in Detroit. Uh, when I came out to L.A., I helped, you know, like the, the front office with Jeff Walton and Don Wilson and Larry Korn and Bob Kubik and, you know, all those guys. You know, I helped, you know, the promotion out there, setting up the ring, everything from, you know, passing out posters to running a ticket office to promoting. Uh, and, you know, the one thing that really helped me out in L.A. was when we set up the ring and we were there so early is that I would get in the ring and pretend I was a manager taking bumps. So I would use that, you know, as a tool, you know, for my future managing career. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, uh, I've been very fortunate, you know, in the wrestling world and uh, the wine industry and my, you know, job that uh, really, you know, helped me, you know, buy everything that I have and, you know, gave me a life was my uh, work with at AT&T for 32 years, you know. So now, ever since then, it's my time to give back to the professional wrestling world. And, you know, I've done that through, you know, my books. I do that through my tribute videos, which are on YouTube. Uh, if anybody you've done wants for to years though, you've done your tribute videos for many years. Yes. Great with great music, great music underneath it because you also have a big passion. You've managed and helped out a lot of rock musicians and uh, blues musicians and more. Yep. Well, why and don't I? I'm sorry, Dave. No, uh, go right ahead. I was going to say, why don't we before we get into it, since Dr. Mike brought up about big time memories and the tribute videos and everything else like that. Why don't I pull up and play the trailer from the video I saw promoting big time memories? Good. Appreciate it. We'll, we'll start off with there. That way we can move forward. Do you miss the golden era of professional wrestling? Wrestling fans, it's time to bring those memories back to life. To take you back to the legendary arenas, the chair shots, the foreign objects, good versus evil, all the heroes you loved, and the villains you love to hate, and the blood. Guiding us on this journey through professional wrestling history, IBW Hall of Famers, Supermouth, Dave Drayson and Terry Sullivan. International Big Time Wrestling and Rocks TV proudly presents Big Time Memories. That's the fact, Jack! Let me ask uh, Dave, too, and I'm sure our viewers are going to be interested. So, Dave, is it still every Friday a new one drops, new brand new segment? Yes, every Friday, 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time or Eastern Standard Time, whenever we go back to whatever, you know, daylight thing. Uh, every uh, 
Friday night, 7 p.m. You can watch it live or watch it later on YouTube, on Facebook, uh, Rocks TV, if you have Roku. And I think I just heard today that they may have been picked up by uh, Amazon Prime. So, yeah, we did uh, three episodes of Aired so far. Uh, We initially did Bobo Brazil. We did Terry Funk. Last week is Louis Martinez. And this week we'll be having the Sheik. So that should bring a big audience. Dave mentioned up one of my favorites from the old school there, Terry Funk. And there's been a lot of stuff you hear because we know everything on the Internet is true. Does anybody know how Terry's doing? Because I heard there's been some uh, rough patches since Vicky died. Well, I'll tell you, because I'm in on that fully. Um, I had Terry Funk and J.J. Dillon booked last uh, August for a, uh, a similar charity thing to yours, a, a COVID con. This one was going to benefit wrestlers out of work because there's no fan fest, no signings. Most of the indie guys have no independent shows. It's only WWE and the majors like AEW and MLW and Impact with shows where they can still afford to film and, and satisfy COVID protocol and CDC stuff. And then I got some calls, some advertising them. I thought that would be perfect because as Dave knows, he's been to a ton of CACs. I've been CACs board photographer since 87. Dave has come to tons of them. And uh, for years and years, Terry Funk and J.J. Dillon were our MCs, our hosts for our awards night, our Wednesday night awards banquet since we moved to Vegas in 2000 from Los Angeles. But so I thought that would be perfect because we're also trying to benefit Cauliflower Alley. There was a separate CauliCon division of COVIDCon. So I get a call and some emails frantically asking me to reconsider, please, from reps for Terry's daughter, who lives closest to him, Stacy. Um, and I agreed to do that because uh, I was, you know, getting lots of calls from Terry, noticed he at times would be very repetitive and stuff. And granted, you know, he had a ton of share shots and legit concussions. Dave and I were both witness to him, you know, starting even at the Olympic Auditorium, where he took a nasty share shot from uh, uh, clumsy Victor Rivera in 1972, yeah. March of 72, 73, yeah. 73, um, and it, 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 both of his daughters, but particularly the one that, you know, gets his groceries, lives near him and two caretakers, etc., are concerned. They wouldn't want him to be put into a live radio situation where, you know, for like an hour he could get bombarded with all kinds of questions Uh, You know how fans are, and that's kind of how these things go. And it would be kind of disjointing. You know, so besides the concussion issue, and and probably nobody took, you know, maybe Harley Race with the diving headbutts, more legit shots and stingers and all of that that um, Terry did. But you add in the fact that his wife, Vicky, died about 16, 17 months ago, and that was his rock. I used to photograph them every single year from, I forget when, mid-70s or whenever, on to current, um, just because they you know, were one of these wrestling couples. They'd been through ups and downs, near separations, all kinds of stuff, but they hung in there together and were a, a really great marriage and great folks. And um, so 
The daughters didn't want people potentially seeing him compromised, not at his best. You know, he's let his hair go completely gray now. If you saw the message, he, I think, read some copy asking people not to impersonate him online. He's not online at all, but a lot of scumbags were pretending to be him, setting up Terry Funk Facebook accounts, Instagram, Twitters, and it was not Terry whatsoever. So I agreed at the time. I thought that was, I could understand that fully, taking care of seniors myself. Uh, we want people to remember Terry at his absolute you know, best in his prime, not you know, potentially one that you know, might say the same thing over and over. Uh, you know, Because he has his good and bad days. And like anybody uh, that age, and add in the concussions, add in the Supreme Depression, he goes and visits Vicky's gravesite. Um, they moved off the ranch to a place nearby, but the place where she's buried is nearby, the new place where Terry's all by himself now. Uh, and he visits her gravesite at least once every single day, sometimes twice. So he is, you know, it's a lot of grief to have to deal with. Uh, not a lot of people could handle it like Terry. So that's where he is now. And the wish from even this new guy they hired to take care of his social media and eliminate people pretending to be him, they all uh, have said, yeah, we kind of want to, have fans have around the world, particularly Japan and the U.S. and Europe and Mexico, et cetera, have or maintain him in his prime in their mindset. So it's not that he won't do uh, radio or appearances or anything like that after COVID is done, but um, and so I, I respected what I was asked to do. And I thought, yeah, I certainly can see that. And so instead I now, went with a butcher. Now <laughs> have you... Have you watched my episode uh, or mine and Terry uh, Sullivan's episode on Terry Funk? No, I haven't seen it yet. So I want to, and I will now. You know, uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to honor uh, the legends of the past and, you know, bring them into light to fans who may not know. I mean, a lot of new fans will know who Terry Funk is, but a lot of fans I've heard from so far, you know, they didn't know who Louis Martinez was, but then I got, you know, great responses said, I, I may not know who Louis Martinez was when he was wrestling, but you know, through your show, I learned so much about him and that's what we're trying to do. And the way we got started uh, on this whole project is, as you know, uh, Mike, is that uh, some years ago, there was a documentary done on, uh, Detroit history of Detroit wrestling that just failed miserably, you know, and they failed to tell the real story of the history of wrestling in Detroit. And um, at a point, you know, I voiced my displeasure with it. And so did, uh, Rudy Hill, you know, the wrestler and promoter for international big time wrestling. So we voiced our displeasure and then, you know, uh, we were challenged over the years that said, you know, if you could do it better, you know, go ahead, yeah. you know, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Well, why would I want to do a documentary that, you know, people don't buy DVDs these days, you know, everything, you know, they watch on the internet or, you know, try to get everything for free. So I came up with this idea a few years ago with Terry Sullivan, you know, because I kept hearing this, well, if you could do it better, do it, you know, or shut up. Well, it just started to get to me. So I came up with this idea and I said, Terry Sullivan lives in uh, Toledo, Ohio, and I'm in suburban Detroit. 
you know, so it's not that far, a little about an hour's drive. So I said, Terry, why don't you come up and spend the weekend at my house here and let's set up a camera and we'll just interview each other. And we'll start, you know, relaying, you know, the stories of what we know on the inside and, you know, about all the boys that, you know, we worked with around here. So we decided to do it and then COVID hit. And so that project got put up by the wayside. So I was doing this other segment for international big time wrestling uh, called Dave Drayson's Wine Cellar. Mm. And what it was, it was like a takeoff on Roddy Piper's pit. You know, I would sit, drink wine, interview a wrestler, you know, and if they were one of the baby faces, I'd run them down and, you know, just make fun of them and, you know, not pay attention to what they had to say. But if they were a heel, I would just, you know, glorify them as, you know, you know, a, a heel manager should. So <laughs> it was a successful, you know, little show. But then, you know, COVID hit again, you know, it's like, you know, so that was put on the wayside for a while. So when uh, the promoter of international big time wrestling heard that me and Terry had this idea of retelling the story, the true story of Detroit wrestling, uh, they said, well, we have this TV company, Rocks TV, you know, let us film it mm. and let's do it. Tell the story. Let's do it better. And, you know, uh, and give it to people for free. You know, and, you know, how could you beat that? You know, the production, you know, that they do is wonderful. Uh, you know, the guys there, you know, Rudy Hill and Carlito and Bobby and Nick and Mongoose, everybody, you know, they'd make a great show. And they'd let me and Terry, you know, what, you know, just sit there. We sit there as two friends talking wrestling, you know, and they just turn the camera on. And, you know, when we're done, they turn the camera off. You know, they really, they just let us go. We have free run of what we do and they really love what we're doing. So, you know, we're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, you know, we have more episodes coming up. Uh, we have uh, Mickey Doyle, like I said, the Sheik this Friday, Abdullah the Butcher, Andre the Giant, uh, Al Costello and the History of the Kangaroos. Uh, this weekend, we're doing a bunch of new shows, you know, with uh, Pampero Furpo, Killer Brooks, Tony Marino. Uh, we're doing the girls of big time wrestling, all the managers that used to work here. Plus, we're going to tell random stories you like about the little known guys who may never we may never do a segment on or an episode, you know, like things like, you know, Ivan Kalmakov, you know, just a, you know, precursor to what I'm going to be saying. Uh, I was a 12 year old kid and my aunt took me to the Detroit zoo one day. So we're walking around the zoo, seeing the animals and the chimp shows that they used to do back then before, you know, animal rights got into that. And <laughs> I'm standing there and here comes a garbage truck and this garbage truck stops. And this guy gets out to, you know, empty the garbage cans and it's Ivan Kalmakoff. And it's like, okay. holy geez, what is Ivan Kalmakov, this wrestling superstar, doing emptying garbage cans at the zoo? But in reality, you learn over time that, uh, you know, a lot of wrestlers had second jobs. Like Ricky Cortez, he worked at a Chrysler factory, you know, and I happened to meet up 
you know, at this Chrysler factory when I worked for AT&T, because I took all took care of all the Chrysler plants in the suburbs. And one day, you know, I go to this tool crib and it's like, there's Ricky Cortez. What's he doing there? You know, and I had managed him at, you know, before. So it's like, you know, wrestlers, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times you can't make it just on wrestling pay. So it's all these little stories that we're going to tell and we're having a lot of fun with it. Well, speaking of random random stories, and that's why I kind of started getting excited there when you said about 12. But there was a story I heard about you, and this was back when you were a photographer and all that stuff. At say version I heard at least. 13 or so, and maybe Don Fargo in a nail. Can we tell that story? Can I tell it on your show? I wouldn't have brought it up. Okay, I'll tell it to you. Uh, I was 12, 13 years old, and they had a fan convention in Detroit. This was 1967, put on by a couple fans, Don Porter and Cleo Lane, who Cleo ended up marrying Al Costello. So um, they had the banquet and everything like that. And I got to take pictures and autographs and things. And after the Detroit Cobo show, everybody went back to the uh, Sheridan Cadillac Hotel in downtown Detroit. And somebody said, hey, are you going to the party? It's like, I didn't know anything about a party. So yeah, it's up in Don Porter's suite. So they invited me up there. I go up there. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so there's like Dick the Bulldog Brower there. There's Bobby Shane is there. Lord Layton is there. And it's like, I'm a 12-year-old kid and I'm in heaven. And I got my camera and I asked, can I take pictures? And it's like, you know, they were sort of kayfabing me. Uh, you know, and I understand that. So then at one point, here's a knock on the door. Lord Layton opens up the door and Donnie Fargo walks in. And, you know, he's not, you know, he was like the rebel and, you know, he wasn't, you know, dressed in a suit and tie. I'll say that like everybody else. So Donnie walks into the room, straight, straight right into the room, goes over by a credenza. And he takes a hammer that he had, you know, why would a guy be carrying around a hammer? So anyway, he drops his pants, he puts his dingus on top of this credenza, he takes out a nail, and he's got this hammer, and he hammers the nail into his pecker. And I'm like shocked. You know, here's a 12-year-old kid watching this, and everybody else in the room is like, holy gee, the women were like aghast. And Lord Layton goes up to him, oh, hey, uh, you know, chum, uh, you know, look, come on, you know, and it's like, it, it was just hilarious. But I come to find out later when I met Donnie at uh, one of the CAC, I told him his the story, and he sort of forgot about that particular incident, but he told me, yeah, I used to do that all the time because I had my foreskin pierced. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense now. But as a 12-year-old kid, I knew nothing about piercings and, you know, knocking nails into, you know, somebody's pecker. Some guys have car tricks. Some guys had nail tricks. And Hey, he was ahead of his time because, Dave, I'm sure you've heard of this. Uh, both of you might have heard of Puppetry of the Penis. It was a 
uh, touring group, a theatrical thing like El Grande de Coca-Cola or one of those, or uh, Dave and I were talking about uh, Beach Blanket Babylon in San Francisco, but it was a touring thing where these guys would do all that and nobody would know. They were all pierced and tatted downstairs. And um, <laughs> so that that is pretty crazy. When he, I saw him before he came to Cauliflower Alley, Dave, he was at a Gulf Coast reunion, the one I, I went with, Ray Stevens and his Russ's wife, Teresa Thieves, paid my way there in exchange for me being the one that would drive the rental car from New Orleans Airport to Mobile, Alabama, where we had to go in pouring rain. And you could not see, I couldn't see shit for six feet. But Donnie Fargo, when he was there and I was chatting him up, he had more tattoos all over the place than Jimmy Valiant. And Jimmy Valiant has got yeah. a ton, as you know. Um, but Jimmy, Jimmy Valiant, what a sweetheart of a guy he is. Nicest guy in the world. He lets so many people come to his dojo, his training facility for free. Yeah, he's a, like a, a saint. And there are a few guys as nice as Sam Boyd. And he had the Detroit history. Was he working as Jim Valen for Sheik or the promoter immediately prior to Joyce and Sheik? Yeah, he came into Detroit as J Big John Valen. And the thing about Jimmy Valiant is, I happened to meet him before he made his debut as a wrestler. Oh. I met him in Cincinnati at another one of these, you know, fan conventions in 1966 and happened to meet him. We got to talking. And then, you know, in 1967, uh, he came into Detroit as John Vallon. It's like, you know, uh, wow, great. Here's this guy that I met last year and now he's a wrestler. And we've been friends ever since. Wow, wow, wow. And he's still married to Angel, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, another sweetheart of a gal. Yeah, really nice uh, folks. Um, Donnie Fargo, was he part of the Dillingers back then? Yep. The chain Gang? Yeah, Chain Gang. He was, uh, oh, he's God. He's a lot of different incarnations. Yeah, and he lived every one of his gimmicks, too. You know, uh, when he got into the Dillingers thing, uh, you know, uh, he had the Hell's Angels, you know, jackets and stuff and, you know, piercings and, you know, uh, pins in his, you know, you know, ears and eyes and nose and mouth and, oh, you know, and then he was a legionnaire with, uh, what was it? Uh, Rene Goulet. Yeah, Rene Goulet, exactly. For Bruiser's you know? WWA. Yeah, and then he was, uh, you know, Donnie Fargo, you know, uh, like a handsome thing. You know, and that's where Greg Valentine got his start in Detroit. Uh, I believe it was 1969. Uh, as a favor to Johnny Valentine, uh, he brought in Greg Valentine, who hasn't, you know, was just training to be a wrestler. And he put uh, Greg in with to manage Donnie Fargo. And he was babyface Nelson. Mm. So that's how he got his start. And maybe six, eight months later, you know, he was wrestling as Johnny Fargo before he became, you know, Greg Valentine. Pretty of their time in the, for Ohio, I thought, for Johnny Powers and Pedro Martinez's Buffalo, Ohio promotion in the territory. Yep. I'm, I'm sorry, Jonathan. Go ahead. Now, I was going to ask, since we're talking uh, the Detroit time period, first I want to bring up about managing and working for the Sheik. But I'm, from stories I've heard from the older generations and guys like yourselves that when Sheik and uh, his wife took over, they had every territory seemed to have a good 15 to 25 year run, depending on where they were and such. But what 
made Detroit so unique? Obviously, you had guys like Bobo Brazil. You had Bobby Heenan come through and the Sheik was running stuff. And what made Detroit in that area so successful? I would say the talent that came through here. I mean, besides, you know, the stuff, you know, the regular guys who are here, like, you know, Sheik and Bobo. Uh, but then you had, uh, you know, Killer Brooks came in, you know, doing, you know, uh, as an enhancement talent at, at his start and became, you know, one of the greatest, you know, in big time wrestling history. You know, uh, when uh, the war with Dick the Bruiser started. Uh, Sheik was bringing in like, you know, Gene Kaniski and Mill Moscaris and Fred Blassie and uh, everybody from around the country. You know, so Detroit wrestling fans, you know, they were treated to a smorgasbord of the greatest wrestlers, you know, from around the world, you know, for many years. And then the Sheik was really a pioneer back in 1972 where he was the first promoter really who bought a mobile TV truck and started filming his matches in all the territory arenas. And that's what, you know, for TV, people were seeing, you know, matches from, you know, different cities, like, you know, besides Detroit, but uh, Toledo, Ohio, Dayton, Cincinnati, you know, Cleveland, uh, you know, they were seeing these great live matches instead of these, you know, studio squash matches all the time. So the sheet, you know, he was a genius at, at his promotion. I mean, he gets uh, a bad rap sometimes about, you know, the way he treated some guys, uh, other guys, their payoffs, you know, but he was great to me. He was great to a lot of guys. Uh, but, you know, he, if he liked you, you know, you were part of his family. If he didn't care for you, you know, he just treats you, you know, like, you know, do your job and, you know, get away from me. Well, would that be when you mentioned payoffs and me and Dr. Mike were uh, talking about him before you jumped on? Like, I've heard a story that he there was maybe a shortage with Bruno as far as payoff. Yes, I was there that day. Um, the one time he brought him in, I think this was 1973, maybe late 72, Bruno and the Sheik, uh, had about it, Kobo, and it went to, uh, they were both disqualified fighting outside the ring. And after, because I knew Bruno, um, uh, I met him a couple times and through our good friend, Georgianne, uh, I always call her Orsi, but, uh, what is, I couldn't, well, I could never pronounce her married, last name. She married the big Greek later. It was Orsi. Yeah. And then when she married the Macropolis. Yes, exactly. So anyway, after the show, Bruno asked if I wanted to go out to dinner, you know, so I had my car. He didn't have any trans or anything. So I said, yeah, where would you like to go? And he said, take me to that Chinese place you took me to last time. And I think it was called Victor Limbs in downtown Detroit. And we had a great meal. And he said, uh, you know, hey, you know, I'm supposed to be back here in two weeks, you know, to go against the Sheik again. He says, keep it between me and you, but I won't be here. I says, why not? I, he says, well, Sheik promised me $2,000 payoff. And my check today was for $800. Uh -huh. So he said, you know, eh, I don't need this aggravation. So two weeks came, I kept my mouth shut 
and you know main event comes and Bruno doesn't show up and the fans are waiting for this you know epic battle and what they did they announced that uh oh Bruno's flight was delayed or something like that and Abdullah Farouk gets on the microphone and says you know we'll take on anybody we'll take on anybody in that dressing room the noble sheik will destroy anybody and then that was the cue for Louis Martinez comes from the back of the arena with his coat on and everything and carrying his baggage and says, I'll take on the sheik. <laughs> it's like he goes in the dressing room and, you know, peels off his clothes and comes out and they went to an hour draw. Mm. So the fans went home happy, even though Bruno didn't show up. You know, that's not unusual, though. We don't want to pin that on the sheik because you look at the and I'm, I'm like Dave, I know I, every territory intimately, you can tell me the year and the month and I can tell you who was there, but Detroit had the greatest group of regulars who lived and worked there. I think of pretty much any, cause you know, like my own primary home base of LA, really we had Tolis Blassi, Gorman Goliath, Shibuya Saito. It was great, but it was not on par with Sheik and Brazil and Furpo and Oh, there's so many. Marino and uh, Tim Brooks, obviously, and uh, Stomper Guy Mitchell. Tex Calhoun and Johnny Valentine. Tex McKenzie. You had the Kangaroos. You had Von Hess and Von Schatz. You had the Hells Angels. Uh, speaking of the Hells Angels, Chris Colt, you know, once the Hells Angels broke up, Chris Colt came in as, as a singles for a while. And he was mid, Sheik only used a mid card, which I really didn't understand because to me, Chris Colt is the most unsung hero in professional wrestling history. You know, mm -hmm. most underused, most underappreciated. And I mean, he made a name for himself in a few territories, but he was never given the due as a great wrestler and entertainer that he was. And in 1973, I saw a match between uh, Chris Colt and Frank, Cowboy Frankie Lane. And to me, that is the greatest wrestling match I have ever seen. And I mean, I've seen Dory Jr. against Briscoe. I've seen Murdoch and Rhodes against so many guys. I've seen, you know, you know, great matches all around the country when I traveled. But nothing to me can personally top, you know, Chris Colt versus Cowboy Frankie Lane. Let me ask you something right there, because, you know, uh, before you came in, and, and did you come into Los Angeles in like November, December 72 or early, early 73? No, seven, summer of 73. Okay, summer, okay. Frankie Lane had already left, but returned, but he, um, he, he came in to, for us like August of, or July of 71. And uh, they put the strap on him eventually. Uh, he was on TV. It was, you know, one of those Vince Jr. things where he beat Black Gordon in like eight seconds, dropkick pin. You know, they kept touting it was the quickest America's title match. That was our lead single strap. And on a work night basis for that brief period that he was there until he had the drop to Killer Kowalski, um, he just really delivered. So you're absolutely right. And then we know what happened with him, which was a, a real shame, you know, he, but he came back and I think you were still with us 
when he came back for whatever it was, the 73, it was the 73 January Battle Royal. We had our annual biggest card of the year every January, 22-man Battle Royal, as did my secondary home base, San Francisco. Roy, every January, had his 18-man, but it actually had way more talent. But Frankie Wayne came back as a heel, uh, brought a uh, the cowgirl valet who never, she never uttered one word. I don't know why you have a manager of valet and they don't speak. But um, he just was an excellent worker. But then we know the problems I really probably shouldn't get into with all Japan. And his star, his sphere of excellence, it just went down the toilet. It was a real crime because Frankie Lane was a superb. He was great in the ring. And obviously Colt was, was great. And a lot of guys, they just get uh, underrated or, or forgotten. And that's what your, your series of documentaries. I mean, I want to hear the nuts and bolts and have you guys discuss, I could listen to it for three hours, Sheik Bruiser. Why did Bruiser, when did he come in? Was it uh, early 72? Why did he think he could come in? You know, he had great talent from Indianapolis, but why do that? You know, we had Territory Wars in Atlanta, Andy Gunkel taking on the NWA, the Paul Jones Atlanta office, and obviously Montreal, Rougeos versus uh, the Vachon's Grand Prix, uh, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, I'd love to. Hey, I would go for an hour on Tiny Tim Hampton, let alone uh, Chris Colt. Yeah, we keep our you know uh, segments you know right about the twenty minute mark. You know, because if, if they sell it to another TV station, they want to you know run commercials you know for a half hour show. So we try to keep it at twenty minutes, and that's what everybody has been saying. You know, we've done you know most of our shows are twenty minutes so far, and everybody's saying I want more. Which is good. You know, you leave that's them wanting point. more. Rizzi told you that last Saturday, said, leave them wanting more. And that's exactly what you do. And that's what we're doing. And, you know, uh, the funny thing, you know, when you're bringing up the, uh, when I worked out in LA, the, you know, few funny things that happened when I was working out there. I mean, the, I left, you know, after a Kobo show and I left and I flew out to LA on a Sunday. And the night before at the Kobo, uh, the Sheik burnt Johnny Valentine with the fire, wow. which, you know, they worked it up, you know, Valentine's in the hospital and he's going to be laid up for X amount of months and, you know, stuff like that recovering. So that first Wednesday when uh, L.A. did TV at the Olympic, you know, who shows up at Johnny Valentine? Well, he was on his way to Japan, which is right. why he was, you know, leaving Detroit for a while. So anyway, he sees me. And it's like, wait, what are you doing here? You know, I said, well, I'm working for the office out here for a while. So he was shocked. And then Johnny Powers comes in, you know, and he's going to Japan. So he's doing, you know, like a week worth of shots there. And he's like, what are you doing here? You know, so I'm working for the office out here, you know, for a while. And then it's like Sonny King comes in and same thing. You know, me and Sonny were good buddies and we'd hang out, you know, on off days in Detroit. And it's like he saw me out in L.A. And it's like he, he, these guys are, you know, shocked to see me out there. But then, you know, I ended up, you know, having to come back home and, you know, uh, you know, writing the body press and, you know, shooting, you know, photographs for the Sheik. And, you know, I also, when he had the TV truck every so often, if they needed somebody to run audio in the truck, you know, I, you know, she could have me do that or, you know, running camera or anything that needed to be done to make his production, you know, do, you know, and that's what I did. Dr. Mike, I want to bring this up because you mentioned it in an email. 
and I don't want to forget this since we've been bringing up the sheep. There was a story you mentioned that I would like you to tell with the sheik Eddie Forehead hitting the Iron Sheik. Okay. okay. Well, uh, Dave probably knows this. You know, uh, I don't know legit if it was the first time they met, but, you know, Sheik would see, and this guy did it better than anybody. Uh, Dave and I have talked at length. He knows that I believe the Sheik was the greatest heel of all time. No questions asked. Most colorful, most interesting. I liked him best when he was paired, not with Eddie Creechman or Dave or even me later on in the, those Northeast Indies in the early 90s. But obviously with Ernie Roth, the uh, Abdullah Farouk, the Weasel later, the Grand Wizard. So Sheik was a, a full regular for, I don't I think he made more tours when it was the traditional Baba's All Japan Wrestling you know, started. Basically, they both broke away from the Ricky Dozan group, Japan Pro. Inoki formed New Japan, December 72, Baba, like the next month with All Japan. She was a regular on all those tours, a million matches with Baba and uh, uh, Sakaguchi and others there, Anton Giesink, and of course, the Destroyer who was- Iron Sheik, Iron Sheik, focus, Mike. Okay. Iron Sheik. <laughs> I'm getting into it. So. For the very first time, to my knowledge, they were even meeting and paired for a tour, a Champion Carnival tag tour. And uh, Sheik goes to uh, with a number of folks to pick up Iron Sheik because he got there early. And uh, Sheik comes down the, the airplane runway uh, or the uh, gate door and Sheik goes up, slaps him in the face. He goes, that's for stealing my gimmick. And then they were fine. And they were paired up. They'd never worked together, to my knowledge, ever. Cosro Vizzeri, Iron Sheik. Uh, and uh, they worked fine, but it was a real unusual. It was sort of uh, the same thing when the Sheik and Great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, were paired up. Sheik gave him shit yep. for stealing his gimmick. And, and Skandar Akbar, he did the same thing to him. Really? Yes. Yeah. Well, he so, was first. You know, it's your baby. You created this whole thing. And, and I, Dave, I want to point out, now, you said last weekend, that's Billy Graham's painting, uh, his oil painting of the Sheik behind you? Yes. Superstar Billy Graham's. And then that's your photo. What's that other thing? Maybe you could hold it up. That's your photo of a bloody John Tolis, who I ran the fan club for. Who else is in that thing? Is that a body press? What is that? No, that's, that was the uh, piece that uh, I did for the CAC, the ear. Oh, right, right, right. Right, of all your great photos. There's George Crybaby Cannon. Who's that with Crybaby? Uh, the doctor taking his pulse. And the, <laughs> now it was funny when the, I took the picture, you know, uh, George said, you know, to the doctor, hey, check my heart. <laughs> and the doctor said, without missing a beat, George, I heard you don't have a heart. Yeah. <laughs> so that's well, the story was, behind uh, that. He was the captain in Detroit when he managed to, the, the next incarnation of the fabulous kangaroos, Kenton Costello. He was, uh, uh, wasn't he the captain? I am right, George Cannon. Yeah, that's what was on the back of his sweater. You know, you know, had Cannon on the top and underneath it, I am right. Uh, he was one of the, uh, that's a whole episode there. I, again, I could spend two hours or more just hearing George Cannon stories. And, oh, well, See, you know, when I 
before I worked for George Cannon, when he started the Superstars of Wrestling promotion up in Canada, uh, you know, I knew George, you know, I'd always take pictures and uh, give him some and, you know, was friends with him. And, you know, when, when he was managing the Kangaroos and then later when he uh, was managing uh, Kurt Von Hess and just, just on off days, you know, like one day George calls me up. He says, yeah, me and Kurt are coming over, you know, the border, meet us at the tunnel. So I met him at the tunnel and he says, okay, I've got tickets. We're going to this burlesque show on Six Mile and Woodward, a little <laughs> seedy area of Detroit. So we go to this burlesque show and we're sitting there and there's just a bunch of old 60, 70, 80 year old perverts in the audience, like looking up at these women who are, you know, flashing their boobs and everything. And we just laugh so hard. You know, it was, you know, a great time. And I'd go over George's house all the time for dinner. And, you know, me and him would just sit in his backyard and, you know, listen to Detroit Tiger games on the radio or swim in his pool. And at one point he wanted to put uh, wood paneling on his basement walls. And I said, I just helped my brother do his. He says, I'll help you with yours. So basically George, all he did was bring the panels over and I did all the cutting and nailing and everything. And, you know, the times, oh, here's a, you know, great, you know, I, I good, you know, thinking on your part, Mike, I got to do just a whole George Cannon episode, you, you know, do, for our memories, because I have some great stories with him. But one of my favorites is very first time we did Superstars of Wrestling taping up at the Global Studios in Toronto. So we're up there the night before we go out to dinner and, you know, have fun and stuff. So we came back to the room and he's making phone calls and, you know, stuff like that for the TV, you know, tapings the next day. So it was 1975. It had to be. And we had heard about this show in Detroit, but it wasn't airing on NBC. It was a new show called Saturday Night Live. And it's like, you know, we heard about it and, you know, what it was, but it wasn't shown in Detroit. But up in Toronto, it was showing. I said, George, here's this show. We got to watch this. It was Saturday Night Live. He goes, oh, OK, yeah, we'll watch it. And the guest host that uh, night was Richard Pryor. And at one point, Richard <laughs> Pryor is doing a word association. A Chevy Chase. A Chevy Chase. We were laughing so hard. George was sitting on his bed and he laughed so hard. He fell off the bed in between the two beds and he's still laughing and I'm laughing and the skit's over and he can't get out from between the two beds. <laughs> and just to see me trying to lift him out of there and stuff, we laughed so hard all night long. Sure as hell couldn't get away with that shit today. Let me yeah. tell you something quick. Uh, neither one of you guys has ever heard this before. I'll go really fast. I got some comp tickets. George Steele and I, along with a number of other talents, were doing voiceover for Mario, the infamous Mario Savoldi and his dad and his brother. They had all these uh, tapes. And so Les Thatcher, myself, Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine was there, Orton Jr. But I get these comp tickets from an old girlfriend to go get front row at the Blue Man Troop in Vegas at one of the fancy schmancy hotels, I forget which. And he sees these guys there. And he, uh, I forget at which point, because I, they brought him up on stage because he kind of looked like them. He had the 
shaved a bald head and he was doing the shtick with them. But I think it was before they brought him up or immediately after. He looks at me, we're dead row center, front row. And he goes, he yells out, Mike, they're, oh, he was up on stage with him. He goes, Mike, they're stealing my gimmick. You know, meaning the silent bald guys doing this crazy shit. And the audience is laughing, but they weren't in on the joke. They didn't know he was a pro wrestler, legend or school athletic teacher, any of that stuff. So it was classic, classic George Steele. There's another guy, full episode on the student. The, the student, student, yeah, yep. Because we were talking George Steele, there was a story he told me. I don't think it was during our interview. I remember him telling it, and Dave might be familiar with it. So if you are, please, I'd like to hear your side of it. Because you also brought up the Detroit Tigers. And George had a story of, what was it, 84, they won the World Series? Yes. And George and a group of guys may have been out drinking the night before the game winning where Detroit won it. Are you familiar with the story I'm thinking of? No, no. Keep going. Well, who who was that? Um, Cause my brain's not working straight. Who did Detroit beat that year? Uh, in 84 <laughs> San Diego Padres. Okay. So I'm not sure there was a couple guys from the Padres and they were in Detroit. They won it in Detroit, correct? Uh, yes. Okay. So anyway, there was a George was out to dinner with some friends, whatever you know, being a local Michigan guy. And I'll keep it short because I'm not, I can't remember specifics. But there was, a, they happened to be going past this hotel that the Padres were staying at, and a couple guys on the team were just, you know, hanging out by the lobby, whatever. Hey, aren't you George George Animal Steel? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm George. You know, how you guys doing? Yeah, and he knew who they were. Well, George, if we can, we like to buy you and your friends a drink. Okay, going to the hotel, go to the bar, the whole bit. And next thing you know, he's he has them so shit faced. But George was not the student, the teacher in this uh, case. Mm-hmm. So he, they got drunk, and he, George always said, "I take credit for Detroit winning a World Series that year because those guys couldn't play the next day, the next year, <laughs> or the next night." Yeah, I haven't heard that one. Good one, but I remember uh, George throwing out uh, the first pitch at one of the games at our new stadium at Comerica Park at one point. Well, that's a pretty big deal. Not that many wrestlers have done that. No. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh, well, here's one, you know, uh, you know, a story like that, you know, throwing out the first pitch and, you know, wrestlers or wrestlers, you know, in a sport other than their own. I don't I'm still trying to find the tape of it because I have to go to Wayne State University, which has all of uh, Detroit television's uh, history. You know, everything that's been ever been taped is there. Yeah. Uh, but when the Sheik appeared, I believe this was 1982 on Bowling for Dollars, you know, a local TV show. And I think the, the very first ball, the Sheik got three pins and the second ball he threw was a gutter, but he stayed in character the whole time. Never spoke? No. I mean, he did his, you know, little shtick and pointed up at the ceiling and, you know, you know, just was a wild man. 
but uh, I remember seeing it, but I would really love to have that piece of film. But, I'd love to see that too. But a good friend of mine, Gary May, uh, who's a TV producer, revived uh, the TV show Bowling for Dollars in Detroit here like about four or five years ago. And we filmed for about a year and a half, I think. And I was their official photographer. Mm -hmm. And the original host of Bowling for Dollars years prior in the 70s and 80s was a gentleman named Bob Allison. And I, uh, we did a tribute show for him on the very first taping that my friend Gary made. And I went up to Bob during one of the intermission things between tapings. And I asked him about this time that, you know, the Sheik appeared on his show. But unfortunately, Bob was uh, a little on the Alzheimer's side and he didn't remember much of anything. So I couldn't get a remark from him about the Sheik appearing on the show. But I know Dr. Mike would have some stories as well. But another one I had heard you tell Dave of traveling around to Detroit and even Toronto as well a couple of times with some guy named Andre the Giant. Mm -hmm. And I always love hearing stories of Andre. So what was it like driving him around and hey, we're going a hey boss, we're going to Toronto. And yeah, there's a couple of different stories I heard. Exactly. Yeah, he called me boss. And I at the time he came into Detroit, I had a big Ford LTD. And the Sheik had me drive him around for the first two weeks that he was here. Oh, great book. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, one time, you know, during his first week here, we were in Dayton, Ohio, which is about a four hour drive from Detroit. So after the show, I knew, you know, back then it was hard to find a party store that sold beer at the time, but I knew that you can go to a bar and take out, you know, buy beer at a bar and take it out. So it was me, Andre, and Frank Valois, who was his, <laughs> like, you know, a manager, sometimes wrestled him, but really his caretaker. Right. And so we walk into this bar, you know, uh, oh, I'd say about 10, 10 miles outside of Dayton, uh, you know, after a, uh, a Hera Arena show. So we go into this bar. And it's like people's eyes when they saw Andre, you know, was just, you know, most of them, I don't even think they knew who he was. So him and Frank bought two cases of beer, one for each of them. So we get back in the car and it wasn't even three hours in. We're just getting to Toledo, Ohio. And Andre, you know, turns to me and says, hey, boss, I need more beer. I go, uh, he drank a case of beer in like less than three hours. And it's like, you know, Andre, it's like, you know, one, two in the morning, you know, there's nothing open here. Boss, I need more beer. It's like, Andre, it's, you know, and I happen to be in the left-hand lane. So while he was talking to me and stuff, you know, I wasn't paying attention, you know, really to the road. And I slowed down a little bit. And right as I did, a local Detroit beer, Stroh's, the Stroh's beer truck comes and starts passing me on my right-hand side. Andre sees the Stroh's beer truck, and he literally opens up my passenger side door, and he's waving the beer truck driver to pull over because he wanted more beer. Well, this, you know, 
driver sees this, you know, giant of a guy in the car trying to pull him over. He just took off and I slowed down a little bit. And, you know, Andre didn't get, didn't get any more beer that night and he wasn't a happy camper. But one of my, my most famous one with Andre was the time uh, after a Kobo show, I was, had to drive him up to Toronto. So he goes, hey, boss, I never been to Toronto. Let's go early. So he wanted me to drive him around and show him some of the sights. I said, you know, fine. I'll pick you up at the hotel, you know, at uh, 7 o'clock. So I pick him up, get in, get across the border, driving on the 401. So we hit uh, Toronto right about 1030 in the morning. Well, we, neither of us had eaten or anything yet. So Andre says, oh, let's get some breakfast. Okay. So the thing was back in the 70s in Canada, at least in Ontario, establishments on the weekend either could have been open on a Saturday or a Sunday, but not both, unless you were like a pharmacy or something like that to be needed or a restaurant. So I found this little dive, you know, restaurant just off of Young Street. So we go in there and it's a very small place. All it had was stools. There was like eight, you know, swivel stools and a counter. So we walk in, we sit down and the establishment owner was a Oriental man and his wife who was like the waiter or waitress. So we sit down and she looks at Andre and she's only like less than five feet tall. Both of them were. She looks up at Andre and she's like, oh, almost like Godzilla, you know. So, you know, so now it's like, you know, we see the menu, very small menu. So we're going to order our breakfast. So I ordered the typical. I got, you know, scrambled eggs, bacon, toast, you know, and, you know, that was it. So it goes to Andre, Andre, you know, so she's looking at Andre, you know, with her little tablet, that little green tablet that, you know, waitresses always had. And she said, well, what do you want? And Andre said, well, I have, uh, I want one dozen egg. I want a loaf of toast. <laughs> I want one bomb bacon. And it's like, she stood there and looked at him. She looked at me and it's like, she didn't really understand because he had that thick accent. So Andre, tell her again, she didn't. Oh, I want half done I want a loaf of toast and I want a bottle bacon. <laughs> she looked, seemed a little confused and she went in the back and, you know, gave the order to her husband. So like 10 minutes later, here comes our food. So she brings the plates and she puts a plate in front of me and there's my eggs and toast and bacon and stuff. So then she sets Andre's plate in front of him. He looks at it and I look at it and we just started belly laughing so hard. You know, we just couldn't control ourselves. So, you know, this poor little oriental waitress he's you know looking it's like oh oh no what's wrong what's wrong and you know i start to tell her we look at the plate again and we just start laughing so on his andre's plate was like a half a piece of egg 
there was like a half a slice of toast and there was one strip of bacon. And it's like, we just, we couldn't help but laugh. So I had to tell the waitress, I says, no, his order's wrong. He wants a half dozen, he wants six. He wants six eggs. And she's like, you know, her eyes open like six eggs. And I says, yeah. And he wants a loaf of toast, the whole loaf, you know? And she's like, and then I said, he wants a pound, a whole pound, one you know, kilo of bacon. And she looked at me. She looked back at him. She said, you going to eat that? And she went back, told her husband later on, you know, he got all his food and we had a great laugh and a great story out of it. Unbelievable. I'm going to wrap up a really quick thing on uh, Andre. I don't know, Dave, if you were there in uh, December of 73 at KCOP when he tried to break the Guinness Book of World Ranking Records of drinking beer. But A, we didn't have a representative from Guinness Book, so it wouldn't have been official. But he went through, and I think he had to break 237 cans of uh, Miller or Schlitz. He got to about 10, excuse me, 215, and then just passed out. I'm, I'm making this really short. Do you remember that? Were you at that thing? Because everybody was back there. It was after the KCOP taping. So the taping was already completed. And there were a ton of wrestlers there, all these boys, you know, watching him trying to do this. And I'd never seen him pass out before. Because he could no. pay lots of beer and wine. But this was the first and only time. Yeah, I wasn't there for that when I heard about the story. And I heard he passed out in the lobby right on the floor and none of the wrestlers could pick him up and take him back to the room. And he slept on the floor of the lobby all night. But well, cool I really wish, you know, I mean, I was a young kid back then. I didn't drink any alcohol or anything like that. But when me and him would go out to dinners, I mean, he would go through three bottles of wine, you know, mm -hmm. usually French Bordeaux. And it's like, you know, I, really am envious now that you know with my wine background now oh man i wish i drank wine with andre back then well maybe that's where maybe he influenced you to become the wine uh, expert connoisseur you are now no that would have to go to dr eric goldenberg you know god bless his soul rest in peace uh i had i didn't drink anything uh until my 20s but Eric was uh, at doing his residency out in San Francisco. And at one point he says, hey, there's this place called Napa Valley. You know, we, we can go up there and they let you drink wine for free. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, this is back in, you know, 70s. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, let's go up there. So we went to uh, uh, Sebastiani was our first, you know, winery mm -hmm. that I've ever went to. And it's like, I tried some stuff and it's like, you know, the sweet stuff was okay. The dry stuff, you know, geez, you know, my palate just wasn't used to it. And, but that started my whole passion in wine. It could oh. be a more beautiful place. We got to let Dave go soon. Can I just throw up, because I haven't done anything visually here. I just want to throw up two seconds. I want to plug some books, Dick Byers book. Now that we lost the great, late, great, sensational, intelligent destroyer. Uh, an analogy, brand new book on Sam and Dave. Also, first time in paperback on P.T. Barnum. That's uh, 
You want to know where Vince McMahon Jr. came from? The latest, actually the only autobio on Peter Frampton. Dave, I recommend this to you. Lots of Alice Cooper stories in here. Uh, a book on jazz clubs of the 40s and 50s. I've been touting this one for a while. And then finally, great new book. I never plug my own stuff. I, really, this isn't mine, but there's a ton of my photos in this. Lance by Chance. Uh, wrestling is a Von Erich. It's Lance Von Erichs, or Lance Vaughn is his real name, his whole story. It is loaded with a lot of anecdotes, everything on the territory of Dallas, uh, world class, but obviously when he uh, was sent to, uh, I think, Portland, Don Owens territory to finesse. Vinnie Berry did all the work on this, on Lance uh, Von Erich, but it's a terrific new book. Everybody's talking about it. It's up there. And uh, Dave, you got to do your own autobiography. I'm nagging you, buddy. you got to do this uh -huh. book. I would like to, if, you know, somebody would tackle the uh, Greg Oliver, Scott Teal, here, here's your chance. I got a couple people I can recommend as well, if that's okay. But sure. Dave, before we, I'll have to get your email and stuff so we can communicate. But before we let you go, where can people find the big time memories and anything else you'd like to plug? Well, if they're on Roku, uh, you know, just international big time wrestling or uh, big time memories. If you're on Facebook, go to international big time wrestling. Everything is there uh, on YouTube. Same thing. International big time wrestling. You know, just go through their files and, you know, all the episodes will come up for you. You know, speaking of books, uh, I've got to say that, you know, my good friend Brian Solomon is writing the autobiography of the Sheik right now. Uh, I'm proofreading and semi-editing forums, so I've you know been the only one who's really read it. It's unbelievable. The research that just this gentleman has done is you know beyond belief. It's one of the it, this will be one of the greatest wrestling books ever written. And I'm reading one of the other ones right now, the book by Gary Hart. Uh, spectacular. I'm, I'm a third so way through it. I sent you that, didn't I? I told I you. I know. That. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it like, that's what, that's a hard one to put down. I but heard it's hard to find. Wants, yep. But if anybody wants to, you know, uh, you know, have fun and look at my tribute videos, go to YouTube and type in my name, Dave Brzezinski. It's B-U-R-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. Go subscribe. And, you know, go through, you know, I've got uh, hundreds of videos and my videos have well over a million views. Uh, you know, everybody from the Sheik to Bobo to Lou Fez and Buddy Rogers and all the greats in professional wrestling. You know, they're, you know, all my photos or, you know, photos from Wrestling Review and Ring Wrestling archives are in there. Uh, they're just a fun watch. Well, Supermouth Dave, I should say. Thank you so much, Dr. Mike. Thank you, as always. Thank you for having me on your show. Always fun to talk to you, Mike. Jonathan, a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. I really appreciate your time. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith 
The industry leader in protective technology is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from peewee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hey, it's Steve Off. You're listening to Crazy Train Radio, and that's the bottom line. 